Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, July 17, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we'll be presenting the prophecy of Zephaniah, and this will be a long one, so we will get right to it. If the editors of the King James Version of the Bible, and those who had um, put these books into similar order before them, sought to order the Minor Prophets chronologically, then Zephaniah is probably just a little out of place, as it seems that the book should have preceded Habakkuk in order. This is because Habakkuk had made no mention of Nineveh as a world power, while in Zephaniah chapter 2 we read an oracle against Nineveh, where it says, And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, and will make Nineveh a desolation and dry like a wilderness. This indicates that Assyria is about to be judged by Yahweh, and therefore Zephaniah wrote his prophecy before 612 B.C., which is the generally accepted year of Nineveh's destruction. Zephaniah himself tells us that he prophesied during the reign of the good king Josiah, who likely ruled Judah from about 640 B.C. down to about 609 B.C. I would rather call him Josiah, but I'll pronounce it Josiah for our purposes here. We had argued while presenting the prophecy of Habakkuk that he had probably prophesied after the fall of Nineveh, since he never mentions the city or the Assyrians, and even then, after the death of Josiah, and before the coming of the Babylonians to Judah, which was between 608 and 601 B.C. Therefore, Zephaniah is probably the next to last of the prophets of the kingdom of Judah, whose writings have survived to us while Habakkuk is probably the last of the old kingdom prophets whom we know, whose writings we have. Most of the book of Zephaniah was also preserved in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and we may examine readings from that source and from the Septuagint where they may improve our understanding of the words of the prophet. There aren't too many from the Dead Sea Scrolls that are significantly different. Zephaniah, verse 1, chapter 1. The word of Yahweh, which came unto Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Zephaniah's name, may be interpreted to mean Yahweh had treasured. The names of Zephaniah's ancestors seem to tell us a story. Hezekiah may be interpreted as Yahweh is my strength, and Moriah as Yahweh speaks, as he does through the prophet. Gedaliah means Yahweh is great, but Cushi, the name of Zephaniah's father, only means their blackness. 
it seems that the names of Hezekiah and his ancestors tell us a story, that what Yahweh has treasured will emerge from out of the blackness, or metaphorically, from out of the disgrace of his people, as they are about to be disgraced. This theme is inferred later in his prophecy, in chapter 3. The message of Zephaniah is concise, and without much elaboration, the prophet forebodes imminent destruction upon the old kingdom of Judah and some of her neighbors. Therefore, we also see oracles against Assyria, Cush, Ammon, Moab, and the Philistines, as well as certain cities on the coast. It is difficult to tell exactly when Zephaniah had written, but we may conjecture that it was towards the end of the reign of the king Josiah. Since Josiah was the king, and since the sons of Josiah were already old enough to go astray, as Yahweh is attributed in verse 8 of this first chapter as saying, that I will punish the princes and the king's children and all such as are clothed with strange apparel, inferring that the children of the king are already wearing strange apparel. Josiah, coming to rule Judah at a very young age, his sons would be young even towards the end of his 31-year rule. After the death of Josiah, who was no older than 40 years, he may have been 39, in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, we learn that he had at least two sons, Jehoahaz and Eliakim, who was, re- who was renamed Jehoiakim, who were at that time about 23 and 25 years of age. So these men who did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord after their father died must be considered among the king's children of Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 8. With this, we can imagine that perhaps Zephaniah had written within the last 10 years or so of the rule of King Josiah. From 2 Chronicles chapter 34, we read, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned in Jerusalem 30 and one years. And of course, the prophecy of Zephaniah could not have been later than the 28th year of Josiah's reign, because Nineveh was still extant when Zephaniah wrote. 2 Chronicles chapter 34, verse 2. And he did that which was right in the sight of Yahweh, and walked in the ways of David his father, and declined neither to the right hand nor to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet young, and of course he would be 15 or 16, he began to seek after the God of David his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem from the high places and the groves and the carved images and the molten images. Then, after describing how Josiah had cut down all of the groves 
and temples of the idols. We read in part from verse 8, Now in the eighteenth year of his reign, when he had purged the land and the house, referring to the temple, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and Maasiah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Jehoahaz, the recorder, to repair the house of Yahweh his God. Then during the reparation of the temple, we see in verses 14 and 15 that Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of Yahweh given by Moses. And Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of Yahweh. And Hilkiah delivered the book to Shaphan. Evidently, the book of the law had fallen into obscurity and disuse, as did the temple of Yahweh. So we read further from verse 16. And Shaphan carried the book to the king and brought the king word back again, saying, All that was committed to thy servants, they do it. And then a verse or two later, then Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah, the priest, had given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And it came to pass, when the king had heard the words of the law, that he rent his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah and Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, and Abdon, the son of Micah, and Shaphan the scribe, and... Isaiah, a servant of the king, saying, Go, inquire of Yahweh for me, and for them that are left in Israel and in Judah, concerning the words of the book that is found. For great is the wrath of Yahweh that is poured out upon us, because our fathers have not kept the word of Yahweh to do after all that is written in this book. After this, they chose to inquire with the prophetess concerning these things. The use of women as prophets is rare in Scripture. However, we see such women elsewhere in times of Israel's apostasy and distress. There are at least six such women named in the Old Testament. From verse 22 of 2 Chronicles chapter 34, And Hilkiah, and they that the king had appointed, went to Holgah, the prophetess, the wife of Shalem, the son of Tikvath, the son of Hazra, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she dwelt in the college in Jerusalem. And they spoke to her to that effect. And she answered them, Thus saith Yahweh, God of Israel, Tell ye the man that sent you to me. Thus saith Yahweh, Behold, I will bring evil upon this place and upon the inhabitants thereof, even all the curses that are written in the book which they have read before the king of Judah. Because they have forsaken me, and have burned incense unto other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath shall be poured out upon this place, and shall not be quenched. And as for the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of Yahweh, so shall you say unto him, Thus saith Yahweh, God of Israel, concerning the words which thou hast heard. Because thine heart was tender, and thou did humble thyself before God, when thou hearest 
his words against this place and against the inhabitants thereof and the humblest thyself before me and did rend thy clothes and weep before me, I have even heard thee also, saith Yahweh. Behold, I will gather thee to thy fathers, and thou shalt be gathered to thy grave in peace. Neither shall thine eyes see all the evil that I will bring upon this place and upon the inhabitants of the same. So they brought the king word again. And of course, Josiah died in a war. In the grave, he found peace. With this event, Josiah instituted a religious revival which was even greater than that which he had earlier in his rule, where he had broken down the idols ten years before. And we read further on in that chapter from verse 29. Then the king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem, and the king went up into the house of Yahweh, and all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests, and the Levites, and all the people, great and small. And he read in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant that was found in the house of Yahweh. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before Yahweh to walk after Yahweh and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of the covenant which are written in this book. And he caused all that were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin to stand to it. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. And Josiah took away all the abominations out of all the countries that pertained to the children of Israel, and made all that were present in Israel to serve, even to serve Yahweh, their God. And all his days they departed not from following Yahweh, the God of their fathers. Then in 2 Chronicles chapter 35, we see that Josiah held a Passover feast, which was evidently the first Passover kept in Jerusalem in a long time, perhaps even since the days of Hezekiah, 80 years before. In verse 19 of that chapter, we read that in the 18th year of the reign of Josiah, this Passover was kept. However, verse 30 of that same chapter jumps to the year and events resulting in Josiah's death. So little is known of the final 13 years of his tenure as king. The battle in which Josiah died is actually mentioned by the Greek historian Herodotus in chapter 159 of book two of his histories, wherein the people of the kingdom of Judah are identified by the historian as Syrians. And he was writing about 170 years later. So it seems that during these last 13 years of the life of Josiah, and especially in the 10 years from the Passover recorded in 2 Chronicles chapter 35 down to the fall of Nineveh in 612 BC, that Zephaniah had published his message in Judah. Yet the prophetess Huldah and even Josiah himself had already understood that judgment upon Judah was imminent as it was expressed in 2 Chronicles, chapter 34. A few years later, Habakkuk tells us of the circumstances in Judah. 
whereby we know that the revival of Josiah was short-lived, where he opens his own prophecy by praying, O Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear, even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save? Why dost thou show me strife and contention? Therefore the law is slacked, and judgment does never go forth. For the wicked do compass about the righteous, therefore wrong judgment proceeds. In this light, the words of Habakkuk seem to be impatient, as we read in the second verse of Zephaniah that Yahweh had already pronounced his impending judgment, as he was also doing in the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And he says in verse 2, I will utterly consume all things from off the land, saith Yahweh. The word things is in italics and was added by the translators. The Septuagint has, let there be an utter cutting off from the face of the land, saith the Lord. It is demonstrable that in the earliest of the 16 prophets, I'm sorry, that the earliest of the 16 prophets whose oracles are recorded in Scripture is Jonah. But Jonah's message was not directly to Israel. After Jonah is Hosea and Isaiah, as well as Micah and Amos, who were all roughly contemporary to the time of Isaiah. Following them are Joel and Nahum. Habakkuk and Zephaniah are both contemporary to the time of Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Joel and Nahum are prophets of the post-Assyrian captivity period. And following Ezekiel and Jeremiah and the destruction of Jerusalem are Obadiah and Daniel. Finally, there are the second temple prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. The reason for recollecting this here is that the earliest recorded prophets, when they began issuing their oracles against Israel, had done so only a few short decades before the judgment on the northern kingdom began. The time towards the end of the reign of King Uzziah during which Hosea and Isaiah had begun their ministries was not long before 750 BC, and Samaria was destroyed and its inhabitants taken captive not long before 720 BC. Sennacherib took most of Judah captive along with Israel about 700 BC, and by the time of Esar Haddan, perhaps 680-something B.C., there was only a small and scattered remnant of Israel left in the land, while Judah was greatly reduced. Yet the remnant of Judah, who became the post-Assyrian kingdom of Judah, had signs and warnings and oracles commanding them to repent and to return to Yahweh for another 90 years to the death of Josiah. And the final turn to wickedness resulting 23 years later in the destruction of Jerusalem a short time thereafter. For that reason, Judah was considered much more treacherous than Israel. And the two nations are treated differently 
as we shall see when we present chapter 3 of this prophecy, continuing with the oracle against Judah, Yahweh says in Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 3, I will consume man and beast. I will consume the fowls of heaven and the fishes of the sea and the stumbling blocks with the wicked. And I will cut off man from the land, saith Yahweh. Now, the New American Standard Version has part of this verse a little better, where it reads, and the ruins along with the wicked. The Septuagint seems to be clearer. Let man and cattle be cut off. Let the birds of the air and the fishes of the sea be cut off. And the ungodly shall fail. And I will take away the transgressors from the face of the land saith Yahweh. Too often are identity Christians quick to assume that the word beast refers to the non-Adamic races. While it is true in some contexts that beast can refer to a hominid which does not have that spirit of God that was imparted to the Adamic man, often the word simply refers to animals certainly only means to refer to cattle as the Septuagint has it. And verse 4, I will also stretch out my hand upon Judah and upon all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place and the name of the Camerine with the priests. Kemarim is a plural form of the word kemar in Hebrew. Kemarims is therefore redundant. The Kemarim from Strong's number 3649 are properly ascetics, those who were evidently teaching the practice of severe self-discipline and abstention from indulgence. And evidently their teaching was hypocritical, and therefore they may be considered to be false priests or prophets. They are distinguished here from the priests themselves. The Septuagint has the later half of this verse to read only, and I will remove the names of Baal out of this place and the names of the priests, having no mention of the Kemarim. Since the word for man in verse 3 is Adam, it is evident that this verse represents a parallelism, which can be described as something which is expressed twice consecutively, but in different ways. Two consecutive statements, both referring to or describing the same thing, is a parallelism a literary device common to the Hebrew language in the Old Testament and employed by the native Hebrew speakers who had been writing in Greek in the New Testament. But the fact that there were many non-Israelites, primarily Kenites and Canaanites, in high places in Jerusalem at this time cannot be ignored. And oracles found 
written of Jerusalem at this very time. In Jeremiah chapter 2, which speaks several times of the race mixing in Judah, and Ezekiel chapter 16 explain that very situation. Jeremiah chapter 2 outlines the race mixing of Judah, and in Ezekiel, Yahweh censures the nation by stating, Thus saith Yahweh God unto Jerusalem, Thy birth and thy nativity is of the land of Canaan. Thy father was an Amorite, and thy mother a Hittite. The story of Susanna, which records an early event in the life of the prophet Daniel, also attests to the same situation where Canaanites are posing as priests. Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 5, Yahweh speaking about cutting off the name of the priests, and them that worship the host of heaven upon the housetops, and them that worship and that swear by Yahweh and that swear by the king. I know that the King James says Malcam. While only a few of the popular English translations correctly render this verse, the last word should certainly be and them that worship by Yahweh and that swear by the king. In the Hebrew, there is no indication in the grammar that a particular idol is intended by the word Melech, which appears here, for which the King James has Malcham. Melech is the simple Hebrew word which means king. If it was prefaced by an article and by an eth, then it would probably refer to a particular king and therefore an idol. Most translations and many commentaries insist that the reference here is to Moloch, which also comes from that same Hebrew word, Melech, meaning king. And Moloch was the title of a particular idol, but it's not the case here in the Hebrew grammar. In the prophecy of Jeremiah, Yahweh rebukes the children of Israel for worshiping the host of heaven, speaking of the same judgment to come upon Jerusalem, which Zephaniah is speaking of here. First in Jeremiah chapter 8, we read, At that time, saith Yahweh, they shall bring out the bones of the kings of Judah, and the bones of his princes, and the bones of the priests, and the bones of the prophets, and the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, out of their graves. And they shall spread them before the sun and the moon, and all the hosts of heaven, whom they have loved, and whom they have served, and after whom they have walked, and whom they have sought, and whom they have worshipped. They shall not be gathered nor be buried, for they shall be for dung upon the face of the earth. Then in Jeremiah chapter 19 he says, And the houses of Jerusalem and the houses of the kings of Judah shall be defiled as the place of Tophet, 
because of all the houses upon whose roofs they have burned incense unto all the hosts of heaven, and have poured out drink offerings unto other gods. In ancient pagan lore, the heavenly bodies represented deities. Paul, warning about the worship of angels, the term host of heaven ostensibly refers to fallen angels at the same time that it refers to heavenly bodies. These idols were assigned attributes and personalities and were worshipped as gods, whether it be Pluto, Apollo, Saturn, Mars, or the equivalent Babylonian names. Verse 6, And them that have turned back from Yahweh, and those that have not sought Yahweh nor inquired for him, as we have discussed in a revival instituted in the 18th year of Josiah, the king caused the words of the law of Yahweh to be read in the ears of all the people. The pending judgment for apostasy was openly proclaimed by the king and the prophetess, but the people evidently did not heed these things. Hold thy peace in the presence of Yahweh God, for the day of Yahweh is at hand, for Yahweh has prepared a sacrifice. He has bid his guests, and it shall come to pass in the day of Yahweh's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children and all such as are clothed with strange apparel. So we see that although the words of the law were read in the ears of the people, they still neglected to follow them. The reference to strange apparel is given as an example for the neglect of the law. As the law outlines what sort of apparel the children of Israel had been commanded to wear. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 22, we read from verse 11, Thou shalt not wear a garment of diverse sorts, as of woolen and linen together. Thou shalt make thee fringes upon the four quarters of thy vesture, wherewith thou coverest thyself. In the ancient world, even in Rome, clothing also served as a form of identification, and one's clothing revealed one's nation and one's status, and also the gods which one worshipped. Here, the destruction of the enemies of God is depicted as a sacrifice, as we also see in Revelation chapter 19, that the marriage supper of the Lamb is the great feast made in the destruction of the enemies of Christ. That same event, as it is prophesied in Ezekiel chapter 39, is described as a sacrifice. Here, the sacrifice is a little different. Here, the sacrifice is in the destruction of those of the people of Yahweh who had opposed him in their apostasy and who are ostensibly going to be slaughtered for the good of the remnant which shall be preserved. Verse 9, in the same day, 
also I will punish all those that leap on the threshold, which fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. The words, all those that leap on the threshold, are an acceptable literal translation of the corresponding Hebrew words, which perhaps represent an idiomatic expression that we do not properly understand now. Some translations interpret it to be referring to the haughty or the proud of heart. Verses 7 through 10 of Zephaniah of this chapter were not preserved in the Dead Sea Scrolls, although they had apparently existed in those copies. They'd been damaged beyond readability. Verse 9 in Brenton Septuagint, where he follows the Greek sufficiently, reads, And I will openly take vengeance on the porches in that day. The threshold of the house was actually seen as its front porch. On the men that fill the house of Yahweh, their God, with ungodliness and deceit. So in the Septuagint, translation, the term their master's houses was interpreted as being the house of God, the house of Yahweh at the temple in Jerusalem. But the filling of one's master's house could refer to the idol that one worships. And the filling of one's master's house with violence and deceit may refer to the dedications which were made in the temples of the idols and how they consisted of wrongfully gained wealth. Joshua Christ used similar language where he condemned the Pharisees for filling their cups with extortion and excess, meaning with wine which had been bought with illicitly gained money. Those who fill their master's houses with violence and deceit are those who make illicit gains in their business or in their daily transactions. and take dedications from those gains and bring them to the temples of their idols. Verse 10. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith Yahweh, that there shall be the noise of a cry from the fish gate and the howling from the second, and that would infer the second gate or any of the other gates and a great crashing from the hills. Jerusalem was surrounded by many gates. Rather than the fish gate, which was indeed one of the names of the gates of Jerusalem, the Septuagint has the gate of men slaying, which is rather obscure. The fish gate seems to have been on the western end of the northern edge of the city. Therefore, the verse is a warning which refers to the howling of the watchmen upon the gates of the city, starting with the fish gate, as a great invading army is observed approaching the city, ostensibly since it starts at the fish gate, 
the army would approach the city from the hill country to the north and west of the city. How, ye inhabitants of Maktesh, for all the merchant people are cut down, all they that bear silver are cut off. The word Maktesh literally means a mortar. However, here it is accompanied by the definite article, referring to a particular place called the mortar, or perhaps to a place bearing such a nickname, as it is by some commentators imagined to refer to an area within the city of Jerusalem which was set in a valley or a holler, a, a holler, yeah, I said it, a hollow or a holler an area of land which would be in the shape of a mortar. The verse is telling us that this was the area of the city occupied by the merchant class. Over time, the Hebrew word for Canaan had become a synonym for merchant. Here, where we see the term merchant people, in the King James Version. The Septuagint, as well as other versions, other translations, which are based on the Masoretic text, have people of Canaan or something similar. In the King James Version, the word for Canaan is translated as merchant in Job 41, chapter 6, in Hosea 12, 7, in Isaiah 23, 11, and Proverbs 31, verse 24. In each of those passages, the context affirms that the King James reading of merchant for Canaan is correct, as it should be evident here where the Hebrew parallelism equates the merchant people to all they that bear silver. So here, Canaan, in this context, certainly stands for merchant and not for the tribe with that name. That context is absolutely clear in Hosea 12.7 and those other passages as well. Canaan became a synonym for merchant in the Hebrew language. Verse 12, And it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with candles and punish the men that are settled on their leaves, that say in their heart, Yahweh will not do good, neither will he do evil. There is a more elaborate but very similar analogy made in Micah chapter 3, where it says, speaking of the children of Israel, the heads thereof judge for reward, and the priests thereof teach for hire, and the prophets thereof divine for money. Yet will they lean upon Yahweh and say, Is not Yahweh among us? No evil can come upon us. In other words, simply because they were the people of God, they thought that they could 
get away with murder. Likewise, the men here are depicted by Zephaniah as imagining that they will not be punished for their sins. They are settled on their lees, meaning that they have become insolent in their prosperity. A similar phrase was used of Moab in Jeremiah chapter 48 to refer to relative security in prosperity. But in fact, they will be punished for their sins. Verse 13, Therefore their goods shall become a booty, and their houses a desolation. They shall also build houses, but not inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards, but shall not drink the wine thereof. Here we have people in Jerusalem whose wealth has been gained through fraud and deceit. And then they dedicate that wealth to their idols. Amos issued a similar warning to the children of Israel who had prosperity upon injustice in Amos chapter 5, where it says, For as much, therefore, as your treading is upon the poor, and you take from him burdens of wheat, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink wine of them. For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins. They afflict the just, they take a bribe, and they turn aside the poor negate from their right. Therefore the prudent shall keep silent in that time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so Yahweh, the God of hosts, shall be with you as you have spoken. The Lord will do. Good. He will judge his people, doing evil to them in that judgment. The children of Israel would not be let off the hook simply because of who they were. They would be punished for their sins. The message in Amos is the same message which Zephaniah had 150 years later. The same is the same message that Micah had at the same time as Amos. The great day of Yahweh is near. It is near and hasteth greatly. Even the voice of the day of Yahweh, the mighty man shall cry there bitterly. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of the trumpet and alarm against the fenced cities. In the interim time, the people of Jerusalem had gone out and inhabited many of the other cities which were left vacant by the Assyrian deportations of Judah. And against the high towers, and I will bring distress upon men, that they shall walk like blind men, because they have sinned against Yahweh, and their blood shall be poured out as dust, and their flesh as the dung. The great day of the Lord here is a reference to the judgment which is about to come upon Judah by the hand of the Babylonians as a result of their sin. Whenever our people suffer calamity, we should see it in that same way, without exception, as a punishment from God for sin. Our ancestors understood this. 
since the English word crisis was taken directly from the Greek word krisis, meaning judgment. The references to the great day of the Lord in the prophet and the prophetic writings are often interpreted as dual prophecies, meaning that they have a future fulfillment as well as a past and historical fulfillment. This is often true, and even when it is not inferred by the, by the prophets themselves. It is nevertheless true, because we as a race continually repeat the same patterns of apostasy which cause us to be judged. And while our white Israelite nations have no apparent outside aggressors attacking us today, we have nevertheless been overrun with aliens. We have what is called crime, which is attributed to racism or to poverty or to a host of other supposed evils. Yet all of those attributions are lies perpetuated by the eternal enemies of our God in order to keep us deceived. In truth, we must realize that when we see criminal acts perpetrated in our streets and against our homes, those acts are part of a national suffering which is a judgment from God for our sins. From Jeremiah, chapter 12. My heritage is unto me as a speckled bird. How true is that? The birds round about are against her. Come ye, assemble all the beasts of the field. Come to devour. Come to devour. That's exactly what they're doing now. All the beasts of the field devouring the heritage of Yahweh. The judgment will not end until we recognize our sins. Acknowledge them and repent of them. Therefore, no laws and no police forces are ever going to remedy what they call crime. And it should be obvious in our history that laws and police forces have never remedied crime. And crime, the word crime, also comes from a Greek word, which also means judgment, krima. It's a like word with krisis. Imagine that. Zephaniah 118. Neither their silver, nor their gold, shall be able to deliver them in the day of Yahweh's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he shall make even a speedy riddance 
of all them that dwell in the land. We read in the Epistle of James in chapter 5, Go to now, you rich men, weep, and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. You have heaped treasure together for the last days. In the day of Yahweh's judgment upon men, silver and gold shall not be any protection. Rather, as the apostle explains in that chapter, the possession of riches is a testimony against us that they would that we were not good stewards of the things by which our God has blessed us. Silver and gold will not deliver us in the day of Yahweh's wrath. Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 1. Gather yourselves together. Yeah, gather together, O nation not desired. Judah is now an undesirable nation. The prophet Jeremiah was prophesying in Jerusalem at about this same time, or perhaps only shortly thereafter. And in Jeremiah chapter 3, the prophet had written, Yahweh said also unto me in the days of Josiah the king, hast thou seen that which backsliding Israel has done? And we're going to read this passage twice this evening. She has gone up upon every high mountain and under every green tree. And there played the harlot. And I said, after she had done all these things, Turn thou unto me. But she returned not. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw, when for all the causes whereby Backsliding Israel committed adultery, and I had put her away. Jeremiah started writing several decades after the Assyrian deportations of Israel and Judah, perhaps 80 years after, for the most part. And given her a bill of divorce, yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. And it came to pass, the likeness of her whoredom, that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and with stocks. And yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah had not turned unto me with her whole heart, but feignedly, saith Yahweh. In other words, the revival of Joash was a feigned revival when the people heard the word of God. And it says that they started to keep the law. And Yahweh said unto me, The backsliding Israel hath justified herself more than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north. And say, Return, thou backsliding Israel, saith Yahweh, and I will not cause mine anger to fall upon you, for I am merciful, saith Yahweh, and will not keep anger forever. 
making the announcement to the north. Symbolically, it was preached to the children of Israel in their dispersions. Verse 2. Before the decree brings forth, before the day passes as the chaff, before the fierce anger of Yahweh comes upon you, before the day of Yahweh's anger comes upon you, seek ye Yahweh, all ye meek of the earth, which has brought his judgment. Seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be ye shall be hid in the day of Yahweh's anger. Ye shall be hid. You will not suffer. This is one last plea for the truly humble of the people of God to repent that they not suffer any imminent punishment. True humility is a willingness to subject oneself to God. And therefore, the meek of the earth are those willing to obey the word of God. From Proverbs chapter 16, How much better is it to get wisdom than gold, and to get understanding rather to be chosen than silver? The highway of the upright is to depart from evil. He that keeps his way preserves his soul. Pride goeth before destruction, and the haughty spirit before a fall. We hear that often. And the people that repeat it usually stop there. They only read those few lines. Better it is to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. He that handles a matter wisely shall find good, and whoso trusteth in Yahweh, happy is he. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. But those who are truly humble obey the word of God, submit themselves to the word of God. Here Yahweh promises destruction to the surrounding nations as well. First to the cities of the Philistines, and in the next verses to the Moabites and the Ammonites. The Babylonian inscriptions of this period are apparently scarce and highly fragmented. But there are surviving inscriptions which inform us of the military operations conducted by the Babylonians against many of these places in the decades after Zephaniah had written. Some of these even list the prisoners of war held at the palace in Babylon and among whom are found the sons of Jehoiachin, the king of Judah. From a note, on page 308 of ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament. We read, from administrative documents found in Babylon, some information concerning the fate of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, can be gathered. E.F. Widener In a German book of which the title may be translated, Jehoiachin, King of Judah, in Babylonian cuneiform texts, has published a small group of texts excavated by the German expedition in Babylon 
and dating from the 10th to the 35th year of Nebuchadnezzar II. The 10th year of Nebuchadnezzar II began in 596 B.C. The tablets list deliveries of oil for the subsistence of individuals who are either prisoners of war or otherwise dependent on the royal household. They are identified by name, profession, and or nationality. The two tablets so far published also mention, besides Judeans, inhabitants of Ashkelon, Tyre, Byblos, Arvad, and further, Egyptians, Medes, Persians, Libyans, and Greeks. So we can see from these Babylonian inscriptions that the Babylonians did indeed, as Zephaniah said they would, did indeed conduct military operations against these other places. However, the inscriptions are incomplete. Yet, we should be certain that we can indeed rely on the biblical accounts wherever um, Assyrian inscriptions have been found matching the biblical accounts of the Assyrian deportations of Israel and Judah or the Assyrian destruction of the cities of Israel. The Bible is fully verified by tablets dug up out of the sand created by the enemies of ancient Israel. and located 26, 2700 years later. Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 4. For Gaza shall be forsaken, and Ashkelon a desolation. They shall drive out Ashdod at the noonday, and Ekron shall be rooted up. Woe unto the inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of the Keratites. The word of Yahweh is against you. O Canaan, the land of the Philistines, I will even destroy thee, that there shall be no inhabitant. And the seacoast shall be dwellings and cottages for shepherds and folds for flocks. And the coast shall be for the remnant of the house of Judah, and they shall feed thereupon. In the houses of Ashkelon shall they lie down in the evening, for Yahweh their God shall visit them and turn away their captivity. Now, Kerethites were mentioned early in Scripture in the accounts of King David, it seems that they were not a tribe of people, but really a class of people amongst the Philistines. The word means executioners. They may have simply, it may have simply been a name for mercenaries. These, um, and I haven't studied it at great great enough length yet, 
But in the early Greek lyric poetry, we learned that the Greeks and others were used as mercenaries by the Babylonians when they destroyed Jerusalem. And the word kerathite, which literally means executioners, seems to refer to mercenaries in the accounts where they're mentioned at the time of David in the books of Samuel. For better or worse, because by this time, and I'm talking about a later time, I'm talking about after 100 B.C., because by this time they were wrongly converting the heathens to the religion, if we must call it that, of Judea. By the time of Alexander Janius, who ruled Judea from 103 to 76 BC, we read in Josephus's Antiquities, Book 13, from line 395. Now at this time, the Judeans were in possession of the following cities that had belonged to the Syrians and the Dumians and Phoenicians at the seaside. Now, of course, in Zephaniah's time, many of these cities belonged to the Philistines. Now we're talking about the time of Alexander Janius, so they've changed hands and and various other things have happened. The Philistines were... um, what were decimated by the Babylonians, as we shall see. And Josephus lists those cities which the Judeans had taken possession of as Stratos Tower, Apollonia, Joppa, Jamnia, Ashdod, Gaza, cities of this prophecy of Zephaniah, where he's saying that the remnant of Israel, the remnant of Judah, is going to possess them. Antidon, Raphia, and Rhinocolora, in the middle of the country, near to Edumia, Adorn, and Marisa, near the country of Samaria, so we're going back to the seacoast, Mount Carmel and Mount Tabor, Scythopolis, which is inland, and Gadara, of the country of the Golanites, Seleucia and Gabala, in the country of Moab, Heshbon and Medaba, Lemba and Aronis, Gelathon, Zara, the valley of the Calicas and Pella, which last they utterly destroyed because its inhabitants would not bear to change their religious rights, rights for those peculiar to the Judeans. The Judeans also possessed others of the principal cities of Syria, which had been destroyed. So we see that in the time of Alexander Janius, this prophecy had certainly come true. While Ashkelon is not specified in the list, the other cities mentioned by Zephaniah are and Josephus does tell us elsewhere that Ashkelon is in the possession of the Judeans. First, in the time of Herod, he had built many public works in Ashkelon. Later, the city was granted to Herod Archelaus by Caesar. However, the original city, Ashkelon, is said to have been totally destroyed by the Babylonians in the campaigns of Nebuchadnezzar II in 604 B.C. 
So we see that concerning all of the cities of the Philistines, this prophecy that these cities would be possessed by the remnant of Judah certainly did come true probably 400 years later. Many of the cities were destroyed again in 65 through 70 AD in the uprising against the Romans. In any event, the prophecy of Zephaniah was certainly fulfilled in the remnant 70 weeks kingdom of Judea. Verse 8, Zephaniah, chapter 2. I've heard the reproach of Moab and the revilings of the children of Ammon, whereby they have reproached my people and magnified themselves against their border. Therefore, as I live, saith Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab shall be as Sodom, and the children of Ammon as Gomorrah, even the breeding of nettles and salt pits, and a perpetual desolation. The residue of my people, the remnant, shall spoil them, and the remnant of my people shall possess them. This shall they have for their pride, because they have approached and magnified themselves against the people of Yahweh of hosts. And of course, the Moabites and Ammonites were allies with the Assyrians when they came against Jerusalem, as they with the Edomites also took part in the destruction of Jerusalem later. By the time of the Hellenistic period, Josephus is referring to Arabians, whom he calls Moabites, ostensibly speaking of Moab geographically, and the people of the remnant of Judah had taken and occupied towns in what was formerly Moab, as we have just seen in Josephus's Antiquities, Book 13. As Josephus describes in Book 12 of his Antiquities, under the Hasmoneans and Judas Maccabee, the Judeans had also made war against and defeated the people he calls the Ammonites and destroyed the cities in the lands they were occupying across the Jordan. So Zephaniah was certainly fulfilled at that time because the Ammonites are not mentioned again by Josephus. The word disappears from his histories after the time of Judas Maccabee and the destruction of their cities. Moabite, as a tribal distinction, had also disappeared by this time. Therefore, it is clearly evident that this prophecy was fulfilled in the remnant 70 weeks kingdom of Judea 400 years after Zephaniah had written it. Verse 11. Yahweh will be terrible unto them 
for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and men shall worship him, every one, from his place, even all the isles of the heathen, ye Ethiopians also, ye shall be slain with my sword. And by Ethiopians, we must understand that the original text said only Cushites, and that there were Cushites in Mesopotamia and Arabia, as well as those to the south of Egypt. The Babylonians, as well as the later Persian king Cambyses, have made war against all of these people. However, by that time, Ethiopia, which is properly the kingdom of Cush, to the south of Egypt, appears to have absorbed large numbers of Nubians, and the historic details are rather sketchy. In the popular histories, Nubians and Cushites are always confused because it was very wrongly taken for granted that Cushites were originally black, which is actually quite ridiculous. It is interesting that Egypt was not mentioned by Zephaniah, even though Josiah, the king of his time, would fall at the hands of Pharaoh Necho too, who was in turn defeated by the Babylonians, as he himself had designs on taking the ancient Hittite city of Carchemish after the fall of Assyria. Egypt had been invaded and overrun by the kingdom of Cush in the 8th century BC, just over 100 years before Zephaniah's time. But Necho II... I'm sorry, it's just over 200 years. But Necho II was evidently a native Egyptian. No, I had it right. His predecessor, Santik I, had supposedly driven out any vestige of control by the Kushite pharaohs of the 25th dynasty. But evidently, he could never remove the blood of the Kushites from Egypt. So while this passage is obscure... This passage could refer to Cushites among the Egyptians, where they had been, where they had ruled in the um, 8th century for 75 years, I believe, the 25th Egyptian dynasty. Or it could refer to Cushites in Mesopotamia. Verse 13. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, and will make Nineveh a desolation and dry like a wilderness. As we have already noted, this oracle helps to date Zephaniah's prophecy to before 612 BC, which is when Nineveh and the rest of the cities of Assyria fell and were destroyed by a coalition of Scythians, Medes, Persians, Babylonians, and others. Babylonia, however, did not begin to insert a hegemony of its own until the ascension of Nebuchadnezzar II to the throne at Babylon in 605 BC. That's when the Babylonian Empire began to develop. Verse 14, And the flock shall lie down in the midst of her, 
referring to Nineveh. All the beasts of the nations, both the cormorant and the bittern, shall lodge in the upper lintels of it. Their voice shall sing in the windows. Desolation shall be in the thresholds, for he shall uncover the cedar work. This is exactly what had happened to the cities of the Assyrians, as Nineveh was the greatest city of its time, and the prescience of Scripture proves the veracity of the word of God beyond all doubt. How could Zephaniah say that the remnant of Judah would inhabit all those cities of Moab, Ammon, the Philistines, the rest of the coastline, Mount Carmel? How could he say that 400 years before it happened? If it never happened, then our God is a liar. If it did, then he must be God. Verse 15, referring to Nineveh. This is the rejoicing city that dwelt carelessly, that said in her heart, I am, and there is none beside me. How is she become a desolation? a place for beasts to lie down in. Everyone that passes by her shall hiss and wag his hand. Nineveh, as well as every formerly great capital city of every formerly great empire, had fallen into the same pattern of deceit by becoming convinced of its own indestructibility just like we see in Revelation chapter 18, Mystery Babylon, the woman who joins herself to the beast says, I sit a queen. The words to Shelley's Ozymandias are timeless. I won't repeat them all here. The poet portrayed Ozymandias as an Egyptian pharaoh who had boasted of his own mighty works, which lay in ruins in the barren desert sand. a monument to the vanity of men. In Zephaniah chapter 3, the attention of the prophet is turned back to the city of Jerusalem. Woe to her that is filthy and polluted, to the oppressing city. She obeyed not the voice. She received not correction. She trusted not in Yahweh. She drew not near to her God. The revival of Josiah was the last chance of many for the people of Jerusalem to hearken to Yahweh. Her princes within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves. They gnaw not the bones till the morrow. Her prophets are light and treacherous persons. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. The just Yahweh is in the midst thereof. He will not do iniquity. Every morning does he bring his judgment to light. He fails not, but the unjust knoweth no shame. 
It seems to me that Yahweh shall indeed repay injustice with his own justice, which forebodes that vengeance shall indeed come upon the unjust. I have cut off the nations, verse 6. Their towers are desolate. I made their streets waste, that none passeth by. Their cities are destroyed, so that there is no man, that there is none inhabitant. The children of the twelve tribes of Israel are first called nations, in Deuteronomy 32.43, where, after we remove one word, which the King King James translators had admittedly added, we read, Rejoice, O ye nations, his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance to his adversaries and will be merciful unto his land and to his people. Here once again the term the nations refers to the tribes of Israel as the context of the statement which follows is directed towards them. I said, surely thou wilt fear me, thou wilt receive instruction. So their dwelling should not be cut off. Howsoever, I punished them. But they rose early and corrupted all their doings. The punishment of the nations referred to here was in the punishment of the Assyrian captivity of the twelve tribes of Israel. For while most of those who were left behind in Jerusalem, which the Assyrians could not take, were identified as Judah, Benjamin, and Levi, large portions of all twelve tribes were indeed taken into captivity. From Jeremiah chapter 30, which is also meant for all Israel, long after most of Israel was taken into captivity, for I am with thee, saith Yahweh, to save thee, though I will make a full end of all nations where I have scattered thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee in measure, and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. Therefore, verse 8, Zephaniah 3, Therefore wait ye upon me, saith Yahweh, until the day that I rise up to the prey, for my determination is to gather the nations, that I may assemble the kingdoms, to pour upon them my indignation, even all my fierce anger, for all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. If the phrase the nations in verse 6 refers to the 12 tribes of Israel, as the context insists that it does, then it also refers to the 12 tribes of Israel here in verse 8. The people of the verse which follows is also a reference to the children of Israel in their dispersions. For then will I turn to the people of pure language, that they may all call upon the name of Yahweh to serve him with one consent. The phrase pure language does not necessarily refer to what we call the language of a people, like English or Latin or French, but rather only to the speech of the people. In other words, it may indicate that their speech would be without the idolatry and the hypocrisy that they had formerly practiced. In Christ, 
it is evident that this prophecy is being fulfilled. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my suppliants, even the daughter of my dispersed, shall bring mine offering. The nations have to be, in Zephaniah chapter 3, the children of Israel, which were to become many nations. And the reference to the rivers of Ethiopia is certainly not a reference to the land called Ethiopia, which is below Egypt, but rather it refers to the rivers of Cush. The word in Hebrew is Cush, and Cush was all over the place. He was in Mesopotamia and in Arabia and in Ethiopia to the south of Egypt, if we go back and study Genesis 10. The rivers of Genesis chapter 2 are identifiable as follows, and I will quote from our pragmatic Genesis presentation of several years ago. The land of Havilah can be identified as having been in Arabia from Genesis 25.18 and from 1 Samuel 15.7. Therefore, the first river, the first river in Genesis 2, the Pishon, or Pison, may be identified with the river which is now dried out that once flowed through the Arabian desert, ostensibly before it was a desert, because it wasn't a desert back then. Archaeologists call this river the Kuwait River. It evidently had its sources in the mountains of western Arabia, near the Red Sea, and flowed eastward to the Euphrates. The second river, the Gihon, seems to refer to the Karen River, which flows from the Zagros Mountains in ancient Persia, and currently empties into the confluence of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. The third river appears to be the Tigris, and the fourth, the Euphrates, which together encompass Mesopotamia. In Genesis chapter 2, the Gahana River was said to to encompass the whole land of Ethiopia, or Cush in Hebrew, whereby we see that the original land of Cush was beyond Mesopotamia. Since Nimrod was the son of Cush, and since his was the first empire in Mesopotamia, and since Cush was the son of Ham, and in Hebrew, the word for the Hittite city, Carchemish, which is in eastern Anatolia, or on the western edge of Syria, depending on which way you want to look at it, the word for the Hittite city, Carchemish, means city of the people of Ham. Car means city in Hebrew. Cam is cam or ham. And ish means people. And the Hittites were Canaanite descendants of ham. So we see that the strict identification of ham with Africa made by most Bible commentators is entirely wrong. Ham was in and beyond Mesopotamia, 
and in eastern Anatolia as well. We may see that beyond the rivers of Cush is poetic biblical language referring to the rivers of Mesopotamia, where Nimrod, the son of Cush, first had his empire, where Moses found a daughter in the land of Cush to take for a wife, which was a reference to the Arabian Peninsula. She was a Midianite. She was found in the land of Cush, but she was of the tribe of Midian, which dwelt in Arabia. Therefore, the suppliance of Yahweh, here in Zephaniah, must be the dispersed of the tribes of Israel, who at the time at the time that Zephaniah wrote, were dwelling beyond the rivers of Mesopotamia, beyond the Euphrates in northern Anatolia, and around the Black Sea, and beyond the Gahan, the river in Genesis, which encompassed, encompassed the whole land of Cush, beyond the Gahan, in Bactria, and Sogdiana, and in the Oxus and Jakartus river valleys. Today they are the Amu Daria and the Seir Daria rivers, which for a long time were the home of the Sake and the Masagete, who thereafter became known to historians as the Saxons, the Goths, the Huns, and other tribes that invaded Europe from the 3rd century A.D. and later. These same tribes were the stone cut out of the mountain without hands of the prophecy of Daniel chapter 2 who were prophesied to destroy the Roman Empire. And they did. Well, these last few verses referred to the children of Israel of the dispersions of the Assyrian captivity. This oracle is still being directed at the people of Jerusalem and Zephaniah's attention turns once again to them. Verse 11. In that day shalt thou not be ashamed for all thy doings, wherein thou hast transgressed against me. For then I will take away out of the midst of thee them that rejoice in thy pride, and thou shalt no more be haughty because of my holy mountain. And this seems to be a reference to the Canaanites who had infiltrated among the rulers and offices and intermingled with the principal families of ancient Jerusalem, as both Ezekiel and Jeremiah attest, as well as all those who descended from them, those who rejoice in thy pride. I will also leave in the midst of thee and afflicted and poor people, and they shall trust in the name of Yahweh. The earthly bloodlines of the families of both Joshua Christ and John the Baptist 
represented the displaced but legitimate rulers of the people of Judah. And they, along with the rest of the true people of Judah, had been left a poor and afflicted people at the time of Christ. The remnant, the true remnant of Judah, over time, became this afflicted and poor people. Verse 13. The remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity, nor speak lies. Neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. For they shall feed and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. By this we know that the Jews who opposed Christ were not of the remnant of Israel. Since he had told them that you are of your father the devil, He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. So they were liars and had deceitful tongues. By the words remnant of Israel, we see the poor and afflicted people to be left in the midst of Jerusalem. This refers to the true Israelites of the 70 weeks kingdom who ultimately turned to Christ. There is a marked contrast given in this chapter between the suppliants who were the dispersed of the nations of Israel who were already in captivity beyond the rivers of Cush and the people of Jerusalem who were about to be judged and who would be left as a remnant of afflicted and poor people. As we have already illustrated here, because the tribes of Israel taken captive by the Assyrians had only a short time with the words of the prophets and little room to repent, those, of, those tribes of Israel would be given mercy with little expected in return. Yet the remnant of Judah in Jerusalem observed what happened to Israel and still refused to repent themselves, for which they would be judged more harshly. So we shall repeat what Jeremiah the prophet had wrote in Jeremiah chapter 3 because it correlates directly with what Zephaniah is saying of Israel and Judah here. Yahweh said also unto me in the days of host Josiah the king, hast thou seen that which backsliding Israel had done? She has gone up upon every high mountain under every green tree, and there played the harlot. And I said, after she had done all these things, turn thou unto me, but she returned not. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it, and I saw when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. And it came to pass, the likeness of her whoredom, that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and stocks. And yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah had not turned unto me with her whole heart, but feignedly, saith Yahweh. And Yahweh said unto me, The backsliding Israel, 
the suppliants who would come from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. The backsliding Israel has justified herself more than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words towards the north. So we see where backsliding Israel is. We see where these suppliants are beyond the rivers of Cush, beyond the rivers of Mesopotamia. And say, return now, backsliding Israel, saith Yahweh, and I will not cause mine anger to fall upon you, for I am merciful, saith Yahweh, and will not keep anger forever. The people in the north to whom Jeremiah had proclaimed those words were the captives of the twelve tribes, taken away beyond the rivers of Cush by the Assyrians. After all of this, the prophet offers a song of hope. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. O daughter of Jerusalem, not Jerusalem. Yahweh has taken away thy judgments. He has cast out thine enemy. The king of Israel, even Yahweh, is in the midst of thee. Thou shalt not see evil any more. By taking the original nation from its position, the infiltrators who perverted and corrupted it were also taken away, and for this the people should rejoice. Which is why we should rejoice when we see Babylon fall. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear thou not, and to Zion, let not thine hands be slack. Yahweh thy God, in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. And regardless of the harsh penalties of judgment which we face for our sin, we should be comforted and the promises of salvation given to us by our God. I will gather them that are sorrowful for the solemn assembly, who are of thee, to whom the reproach of it was a burden. The corruption of the nation is a burden to those who fear God. Likewise, those who fear God are sorrowful for the people of God, the solemn assembly who are in a state of sin and facing impending doom. The enemies of God have no fear or concern for these things. They're feasting. They're parasites feasting off the carcass. Behold, at that time will I undo all that afflicts thee, and I will save her that halteth, and gather her that was driven out. This is indeed a prophecy for the end of days. And I will get them praise and fame in every land where they have been put to shame. As Jeremiah says, I will make a full end of all the nations where I scatter you, but I will not make a full end of you. At that time will I bring you again, even in the time that I gather you. For I will make you a name and praise among all the people of the earth when I turn back your captivity before your eyes, saith Yahweh. 
The language goes to show that the people whom Christ had come to gather are the same people whom Yahweh, whom he had driven out so many centuries before. They still await deliverance from that same captivity, even though they are no longer aware of it. The language here evokes Micah chapter 4, from verse 6. In that day, saith Yahweh, will I assemble her that halteth, and I will gather her that is driven out, and her that I have afflicted. And I will make her that halted a remnant, and her that was cast far off a strong nation. And Yahweh shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth, even forever. And thou, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come, even the first dominion, the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. The same phrases we see here. The further the dispersed children of Israel had traveled, the stronger are the nations which they became. However, Micah and also Zephaniah promised salvation and a gathering to their God for all of them, those who halted and those who were driven far away. So Paul says in Ephesians, Paul says to the Ephesians, a people who also descended from the outcasts of Israel, but now you among the number of Joshua Christ, who at one time, being far away, have become near by the blood of Christ. Tomorrow night, Keith from Truth Militia. Sunday afternoon, Sven Longshanks, a discussion of early two seed line teaching. Next Friday, Yahweh willing, we will return to Paul of Tarsus and his epistle to the Galatians. Thank you. Praise Yahweh. And good night.